to uh, Nehemiah chapter 6, I find some interesting parallels between Nehemiah and the Lord Jesus Christ in what was faced in Jerusalem. Before we jump into our text, and in a few minutes we're going to take the Lord's Supper as we remember together. If you were to find the saddest word in the English language, I wonder what word you might choose. The saddest word in the English language. Well, that question was posed to some famous people. Here's some of their answers. Poet T.S. Eliot said, The saddest word in the English language is, of course, saddest. <laughs> Sounds like a poet. Lyricist Oscar Hammerstein II said, The saddest word is that three-letter word, but, that little negative contraction. John Keats said, Forlorn, for the very word is like a bell. Carl Menninger, the psychiatrist, said, Unloved, unloved was the saddest word imaginable. Um, Alexander Tolstoy said something interesting. The saddest word in all languages, all of them, which has brought the world to its present condition is the word atheism. Certainly that would produce the saddest condition, the most hopeless condition. I wonder, here's my take. I wonder if the saddest word isn't the word Satan. For this reason, since his introduction and interface with human history, he has caused more pain, more sadness, more trouble than anything or anyone else. Think about what he is called in the scripture. The tempter, the adversary, the accuser of the brethren, the father of lies, a murderer from the beginning. All of those are attributed to that malevolent super being, Satan. Certainly he has produced sadness. When Jesus Christ was betrayed, on that night when he took his disciples and he went into that upper room and he shared the Passover meal with his men, that last meal they shared together, Satan was a very real part of that entire evening, in fact, of that entire set of events. We read in the scripture that Satan entered Judas, whose surnamed is Iscariot. Jesus turned to him and said, What thou doest, do quickly. Satan was very much involved. Later on in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus suffered in great agony, and he cried out to his father, If it's possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not mine, but thy will be done. There was that. Tremendous, torturous, wrestling, spiritual battle that Jesus was facing. In fact, if you saw the movie Passion, I think Mel Gibson did a tremendous job in visually representing that at the beginning of the film when that serpent appeared in the garden. And you saw that battle of the ages going on. Well, that's a battle that has been going on since the beginning of time. And it continued throughout history. I think we see a snippet of it here in chapter 6. But it culminates in the cross. The cross of Christ. I'm going to have you look with me in Nehemiah chapter 6. At the first nine verses. 
the enemy is involved. Nehemiah's enemy, the Jews' enemy. The Jews were there to rebuild the city walls. The enemies, we've seen them throughout this whole book. They want to talk. But notice, now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors on its gates. Then Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. That's the place that Yoko came from. (laughs) Or maybe that's where the fish comes from. Sorry, but they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them saying, oh no. I am doing a great work. Listen to those words. I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times. And I answered them in the same manner. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before, the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, there is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. That is Artaxerxes, Longimanus, back in Persia. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. So I sent to him, saying, no such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For they were all trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. They have already withstood a number of attacks by the enemy. Rumors, slander, terrorism, all out fighting and attacking, letter writing to the king. All of these attacks they have already endured. We have seen them in a number of chapters. And they weathered those storms successfully. They met the enemy and they weathered the battle and they moved on. But the enemy is still around. Now, just think about that for a moment. You might successfully fight the temptations and attacks that come from the enemy. But once you finish that battle, it doesn't mean that Satan takes his bag and goes home. It doesn't mean that he'll leave for good. It doesn't mean he says, okay, well, you beat me. I'm out of here. I'll never bother you again. Oh, no. He'll just regroup. And he'll wait and he'll study you. He'll watch how you act and where you're weak. And, oh, he'll be back. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger often said, I'll be back. Satan will be back. You'll remember when Jesus was tempted and Jesus successfully faced those temptations by saying to the devil, it is written, it is written, it is written. We're told this in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him till an opportune time. It's that word till that we ought to be worried about. 
When is it? When there's an opportune time. He knows just when to attack, just when you're not expecting it, perhaps. That's why Peter writes the words we're all familiar with. Be sober, vigilant, for your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Nehemiah could have worked anywhere in the Persian Empire, but because he chose by God's goodwill and grace to work in Jerusalem, the center of activity of God's plan on the earth at that time, that's why he got these kind of attacks time and time again. Well, we already read it. The final repairs were completed except the doors. They weren't quite hung yet. And now is an attempt to distract. If I were to look at chapter 6, I would give three words that I think perfectly sum it up. Distraction would be the first word. Satan comes along while they're doing the work through these enemies to distract them from off the work God has called them to do. How does he do it? Gets them to have a meeting. Invites them to a summit. Let's sit down in the plain of Ono and have a peace conference. Let's talk how we can peacefully coexist together. But it was all a diversion, a distraction. Stop the work. Have a meeting. Those who know me well know that I'm not a meeting guy. I don't like meetings. I'd rather do something than talk about doing something. Now, I know you need to strategize and talk and pray through things, but long meetings especially, it's just, I, I serve on several boards, and I sit in long meetings from time to time, and it's like, oh, this is such a drag. And if it's my own meeting, I like to lie down on a couch or lie down on the floor. I just think better that way. And so it's sort of an odd look whenever you come into a meeting where I'm at. I don't like meetings. I'm doing a work. I'm not going to come down. That's Nehemiah's response. Well, the reason is because there is a plot afoot to assassinate Nehemiah, it would seem. Let's get him out of Jerusalem. Let's take him to this meeting. And while we're having this meeting, we'll kill him. It was a lure. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 3, the commander-in-chief of David's army, by the name of Joab, heard that David was befriending the commander-in-chief of the other side, Saul's house, under the rulership of Ishbosheth, and his name was Abner. Abner was defecting to David's side. But Joab, the commander-in-chief, heard about it and said, what are you doing talking to Abner? He really means you no good, which wasn't true. He was defecting. He was becoming one of David's men. So what happened? Well, One evening in the city of Hebron, Joab put his arm around Abner and said, Buddy boy, welcome to the team. Let's take a walk. They took a walk out by the gate of Hebron where Joab pulled out a knife and killed him, stabbed him underneath the fifth rib, and he died in a pool of his own blood. It was all a lure. Get him out of safety and kill him. That was the idea here with Nehemiah. Verse 3, I love it. It ought to be our little mantra where he says, I am not coming down, or as we read here in the text, so I sent messengers to him saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? I love it. It's it's not that I don't value you as a human being. It's just that I know what God has called me to do. 
God has called me. My priority is to put bricks on a wall, not to have a meeting with you. So I'm not going to do what God hasn't called me to do and leave what God has called me to do. Beware of distractions. They come in many forms. They are well-meaning distractions. Oh, but you're needed over here. Oh, but this is so important. You've got to fix it now. Just remember, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing here was build that puppy, build that wall, get it going, finish the task. Nehemiah wouldn't be distracted. Billy Graham, ever heard of him? Yeah, I figured you had. Billy Graham, of course, has preached the gospel to more people on planet Earth than any other human being who has ever lived. He was asked to begin and run under his name a Christian university. 22 cities offered him free land and free financing. His response was this. Well, I hope you'll come. No, his response was this. I believe it would be a great diversion from my preaching and my worldwide crusade. I'm not going to do it. God didn't call me to make schools and universities. God's called me to preach in crusades. Sorry. I love that. Now, likewise, the enemy, Satan. Let's segue a little bit to the cross. The enemy, Satan, on many occasions, tried hard to digress, divert, distract the Lord Jesus from his most important mission, which was the cross, on many occasions. Often, you know, Jesus spoke of my hour, my time. My time has not yet come. This is not my hour. He would often speak as though he was marching through life on a perfect timetable toward an event, which he was, and that event was the cross, and nothing would distract him from it. It was his one focus in life, to die on a cross to redeem us from our sins. When Jesus was in Samaria, Luke chapter 9 says, he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. In fact, he was so distracted that some of the Samaritans were bothered that he didn't give them the time of day. But he wouldn't be dissuaded from it. That was his mindset. But again, Satan, the enemy, tried to divert, digress, distract him on many occasions. Here's one. The temptation. Jesus is there out in the wilderness for days on end. He's getting hungry and Satan appears to him. You know the story well. Satan basically says to Jesus, why would you bother going the hard way, the way of the cross, the way of suffering, the way of pain, the way of bloodshed? I know why you've come. You've come to redeem the world, the people, back to the Father. So in an instant of time, Satan showed to Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world, and he said, all of these I will give unto thee, for they are mine. And I can give them to whosoever I will. If you will bow down before me just now, just indulge me, give me a little bit of worship, I'll give you what you came for. You came for the world, you can have it. You don't have to go the way of the cross. Don't go there. It was a distraction, a diversion. Peter tried to stop him on one occasion. 
It was a well-intentioned event and idea. You know, Jesus just confided in his men and told them, I'm going to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me. But I'll rise on the third day. Peter figured, okay, I'm the rock. You know, he called me that. He said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. He kind of went to his head on that occasion. And he said, Lord, far be it from you that you would go there and this would happen to you. And Jesus turned to his friend, his buddy, Peter, whom he had chosen, whom he loved greatly, but he knew what was behind that voice, behind that ideology, and he said, get thee behind me, Satan. That was the ideology of Satan. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to go to the cross. Let's just divert you, digress you. I find it interesting that the devil recognized the importance of the cross. So much so that he would do anything to keep him away from that event. Oswald Chambers said, All of heaven is interested in the cross. All of hell is terrified of it. It's more or less only human beings that really ignore it. Satan tried to keep Jesus from his mission. The cross was the ladder to heaven. And just as Nehemiah refused to come down and have a meeting and discuss and negotiate with the enemy, Jesus basically said the same thing. Away with you, Satan. He didn't even discuss it any further. By the way, when Satan knocks at your door, don't answer it. Let Jesus answer it. He's a lot better at it. Instead of you talking to the devil, I bind you, devil, in Jesus' name, I come to you, devil, I say, why do you even talk to him? Why are you having like a conversation? You're going to take him out to dinner next? Leave him alone. Let Jesus answer the door. Let Jesus deal with him. Don't engage him. I say that the cross and these elements represent the body and blood. The cross was, is the greatest work ever. The greatest work ever. Nehemiah said, I'm doing a great work. The cross, Jesus could say, I am doing a great, the greatest work. It's the greatest work because forgiveness is man's greatest need. Forgiveness is man's greatest need. Thus, the cross was God's greatest work. That's the reason Satan would distract Jesus and distract us in our songs, in our liturgy, in our worship, in our traditions off the cross. That's why there's a tendency in churches today to make it so insipid and so lightweight and so worthless in worship that, oh, don't mention the blood, don't mention the cross. You'll offend people. Let's see, last time I read the Bible, it says the cross is an offense to those who do not believe. You've got to realize you're a sinner before you ever seek a savior. Well, I was in India a few years ago, and um, I witnessed something. I witnessed busloads, thousands of people, on a pilgrimage. They, they, they all looked weird to me. They were painted up in bright colors, and they uh, were on these buses. And I said, who are all these people? And he said, well, they've been fasting for I don't know how many days, 20 days straight, fasting every day, painting themselves up to make a, a bus pilgrimage to a holy site in hope to find forgiveness because of the burdens of their sin. This is very typical in Hinduism. 
A missionary was in India. He was at the Ganges River. It's their holy site. And there at the Ganges River, it's a filthy body of water, by the way. They burn bodies in it. They bathe in it. There's cows upstream, downstream, and they think it's sacred. One man had crawled for days on his elbows and knees to get to the Ganges River, and he, he offered his prayer to Gunja, the god. And he was immersed in the river, and as he emerged, he still felt the same burden of guilt and sin that he entered the river with. This missionary started talking to him about Jesus. And he told him about God's love for him and forgiveness of sin and the peace that comes by forgiveness. And the man lit up. He said, that is what I need. I want forgiveness and peace. He knew he could never get it in worshiping the gods and goddesses of Hinduism. That's why the cross, God's greatest work, God, Jesus would never be distracted from that because forgiveness is his greatest, our greatest need. Amen. Now, the text goes on, and I'm just going to sum it up so we can take the Lord's Supper. After distraction came fabrication. We already saw that. The text goes on, verses 5 through 7. This letter came, and it was filled with lies. I know what you're doing. You're building a wall because you want to be king. And you've got these prophets who are trying to make you and the rest of you Jews um, go against the orders of the king of Persia because you want your own gig happening here. And it wasn't true. It just fabricated all these lies. They were simply on order by the king of Persia, right? He gave them the order to come back and build these walls by the grace of God. So it was all a fabrication, all a lie. It happened to Jesus. Now I'm segueing. I'm pointing to the cross. When Jesus went to Jerusalem, all sorts of charges were trumped up against him, especially toward the end of his life, this culminating moment, the cross. He tries to pervert the nation, said some of the Jewish leaders. He forbids the paying of taxes to Caesar, was another charge. Now where did they get that from? They heard what he said and twisted his words. He said to Peter, and maybe some overheard it in the city of Capernaum, hey, look, the children of God are free from the things of this world, but let's not offend them. So go down to the lake and get the fish out, and the first fish you find will have tax money in it. Pay the tax money and get on with it. Handy guy to have around during tax season, isn't it? Wouldn't that be great? Go down to Doheny and the first fish you get will have everything you need to pay the government off. Well, that recirculated and eventually changed and became this vicious fabrication of a rumor. Here's another rumor. Nehemiah had his to contend with. Jesus had his to contend with. When Jesus was brought before Caiaphas the high priest, two false witnesses came and said, this man says we should destroy the temple. In fact, he says if the temple is destroyed, he'll build it in three days. Again, they twisted his words. In John chapter 2, at the beginning of his ministry, he was in the temple. He drove them out with whips. And they said, what right do you have to do this? And Jesus said, destroy this temple, his body. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll rise it up. 
And John said this he spoke concerning his own physical body. They took his words and said, he's come to destroy the temple. Well, after distraction and fabrication, there's a third, and that is subversion. And I'm just going to read through it, and then we'll make a few comments and pray, and we'll take the Lord's Supper. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of this other person, who was a secret informer, and he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. And I said, Should such a man as I flee? And who is there? Such as I who would go into the temple to save his life. I will not go in. Then I perceived that God did not send him at all, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanbel had hired him. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin, so that they might have cause for an evil report, that they might reproach me. Here's his prayer the second time. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat according to these their works. And the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who would have me afraid. Okay, what's the deal? A couple of prophets and now a prophetess is mentioned had a false prophecy. Shemaiah was both a priest and a prophet. He gave this prophecy, supposedly in the spirit, that we ought to go into the temple because they're going to kill you. And so they would hide and Nehemiah would have his life spared. He refused to do it for two reasons, and they're good reasons. Number one, he's the leader. What kind of a message is that going to send to all the people that their leader is a coward and has to hide? Now, yes. There were times when it was perfectly acceptable to run into the court of the Gentiles, the outer court, grab a hold of the altar of sacrifice, that brass altar, for refuge. But it was never acceptable to go into the inner courts, the holy place. That's the suggestion. He knew he wasn't a priest. He wasn't of the lineage of Levi, not that Levi, Levi the priest. And so it was... It was... Unbiblical. It was dishonoring. It would be disobedient for him to take refuge in the holy place since he is not allowed there by God. So number one, he's a leader. He wants to set the example, the priority of I'm not afraid. Should such a man as I flee? No way. And he wouldn't disobey God. So the wall was finished. Here's the best part. Verse 15 is the key verse. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul. In 52 days, think of that huge project, a city wall circumventing the entire inhabitation or habitation of Jerusalem. 52 days done. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it. And the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Love it. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them. For many in Judah were pledged to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehohanan married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. They also reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. Okay. 
The last several weeks, we have been looking at Nehemiah as our sign that's usually up, and it's not here tonight because of communion, says, a time to build. And we've looked at Nehemiah as a template for us today in all of the people in the body of Christ, the church, coming together to build the work, build up the kingdom, further the kingdom, spread the gospel, add our talents, our gifts into some niche and contribute to the mutual edification of each other. We have talked about and asked you before God to make a commitment, a priority commitment to one another. Rather than saying, we want you to pledge X amount of money over the next year, we feel that's a shallow approach. No, we want you to just make a commitment to God to do whatever he wants you to do in terms of using your gifts of the Spirit to build up one another, whether it's encouragement, in counseling, whether it's the gift of helps or the gift of prophecy or whatever it might be, to make a commitment, make it a a priority. It'll do a number of things. It'll show your children the best kind of message a parent could send. You're saying, I love God, I love God's people, and in my life, of all of the things I could do and make a priority, God's people and God's work on earth are high on that list. It'll send them a message when they grow up. Mom and dad thought church was really important, thought the body of Christ and God's work on earth was really important, because it is. Paul wrote to Timothy and said this about the church He said, the church of the living God is the pillar and the ground of the truth. In the world in which we live in that is ditzing the church, ah, church, this church, that church, God still says it's the pillar and the ground of the truth. In Acts chapter 2, we began our service tonight, and they devoted themselves steadfastly to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayers. If you were to test yourself, please don't answer out loud. We don't want to incriminate anyone or show anybody off. If you were to grade yourself on are you devoted to the fellowship as they were in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, koinonia, sharing all things in common. How would you rate? Are you a spectator? Do you just float from place to place? I want to get a little of this here and a little of that there instead of I'm planted so that I might give and help others. That's what we've asked you to consider over the last few weeks. But tonight we focus on the Lord's Supper because it's the cross that makes all of this possible. It's the ultimate sacrifice, the highest work that makes it all possible. Nehemiah declared... I showed it to you in verse 15, and I close with this. The wall was finished. I'm going to segue again. What did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. To telestai, one Greek word, it is finished, paid in full. When Jesus died on the cross, to use the analogy, it's as if he built a wall. When he said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He built a wall. You're accepted. I'm accepted. All of us are accepted in the sheepfold as his people. 
his wall of blood, of sacrifice around us. I want to close with a legend, but it's a good story, I believe. And then I'm going to ask the communion board to come up and we're going to pass out the elements and we're going to sing and we'll dismiss. It's a legend of Jesus' youth, that when he was a boy growing up in Nazareth, he met a young man by the name of Fidus, F-I-D-U-S. Again, it's just a legend. This is not scripture. If you go home and say, now where was that story? You'll never find it. Unless it's in a weird translation I haven't yet discovered. He came and he said, I'm looking for Joseph the carpenter. I want to learn his craft. Jesus said, I can lead you to him, for I am called the son of Joseph. Fidus came and watched and learned from Joseph. And Jesus began to tell him of a great king who would one day be raised upon a throne so high that all the world would see him. Fidus said, I wish I could build that exalted throne of that great king. Jesus said, Fidus, you will be the one to build the throne of the great king, the throne from which he shall save the nations. Years passed. And Fidus went to Jaffa to practice his trade. But in Jerusalem one day, the city was in an uproar. And Fidus was visiting. He could hear the cries of, crucify him, crucify him. And as Fidus neared Pilate's palace, a Roman soldier who knew his skill said, you are needed. Three are to be crucified today, and only two crosses are prepared. Fidus put all of his skill into making the cross, and he viewed it with pride. But then he followed the crowd. He followed them as they went outside And he saw the one that was nailed to that cross. It was the boy from Nazareth. Now a man in agony upon that cross, upon the throne that Fidus had made. The cross, the greatest work God ever accomplished, is not his shame anymore. It's his glory, and I can prove it. Because in heaven, you will see, I will see the Lord Jesus Christ still bearing the marks on his hands, feet, and on his head of the crucifixion. How do I know that? Because after he rose from the dead, he still had those marks. He said, Thomas, Thomas, reach your hands and look, it's me. When he gets to heaven, John sees not a lion of Judah that the angel proclaims, but a lamb when he looked. A lamb as though it had been slain. In heaven, for eternity, he'll still bear those marks. And don't think, oh, I don't want to go and see that. It's his glory, not his shame. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, Hebrews tells us, despising the shame. He's going to see you there in heaven, and you there, and you there, and you. And he's going to say, it was worth it, because you're here. That's love. Would you join me in prayer? And I'm going to ask the communion board to come forward. Heavenly Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for going forward with the work 
and not stopping it, even though Satan, through many different angles, tried to stop the redemption of the world that came only by the cross. As we take these elements, as we remember tonight your broken body, your shed blood for our sins, we remember how much you loved us. And we look forward to the time when we're going to be in glory and be with the Lamb that has been slain from the foundations of the earth. And so tonight, not in shame, but in great thanksgiving, great gratitude, great joy, we take these elements. In Jesus' name, amen.